What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, we've been studying through the first main theme that Paul teaches us here in the book of Romans, which is sin. And in this section on sin, Paul addresses three different groups. The first group that he focuses on is the immoral heathen, and then he goes to the self-righteous moralist, and finally the religious reliant. And with each of these groups, Paul wants them to see that they are sinners and that they are deserving of Judgment, And he really focuses on that because all three of these groups don't think that they are deserving of God's judgment, but they have different reasons for why they've come to that conclusion. The immoral heathen with their horrible, sinful lifestyle, you would think, how could they ever come to the conclusion that they're not deserving of God's judgment? Well, we looked at that. The way that they conclude that is they deny God's truth. They deny the truth that there's a God. They deny the truth that there is sin. They deny the truth that what they're doing is sin. And so they, as we looked at, suppress the truth. Uh, They ignore the truth. They um, come to this and substitute the truth. And so that's the way that they come to a place where they can deny that they are deserving of judgment is because they deny the truth of God's word. But the next two groups that we have here, the self-righteous moralist and um, the religious reliant, they would also say that, you know, the immoral uh, person is deserving of judgment, but they don't deny the truth that there is sin. They don't deny the truth that there's a God. They don't deny the truth that there's a judgment that people who are sinning deserve. So they have a different reason why they have concluded that they don't deserve God's judgment. And their problem is they don't understand the standard by which God judges. You know, the self-righteous moralists, they think, well, you know what? My good works are going to outweigh my bad works. And that's why I'm not deserving of judgment. And they miss the standard of God's judgment. And that's why last week, as we looked at Paul addressing this group, he shares six principles of judgment so they can understand, oh, no, that's not the case. That's not how God will judge you who think because of your morality and good works, you're not going to be judged. Paul lists those things to help them see that they will not escape the judgment of God. Well, there's also the religious reliance, and they don't feel that they're going to deserve God's judgment, but they have a whole different set of criteria and reasons for that. And so once again, just like he did with the self-righteous moralist, Paul's going to share six principles of judgment with these religious reliance. But he's going to be focusing on some different things, focusing on what it is that they actually think saves them. Now, it's important to note that Paul is specifically addressing religious Jews in his time who relied upon Judaism, who thought that their religion affiliation, that their expression of religion were the things that were ultimately going to save them, not a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the two main things that religious Jews relied upon was the fact that God had given them the law and that they were circumcised. Those are two huge relying points. Well, I'm going to be saved. I'm not going to be judged by God. We were given the law, and we're circumcised. And so Paul is going to address both of those issues as he deals with these six principles of judgment. Four of them are going to be addressed with the law. Two of them are going to focus on circumcision. And circumcision was that outward sign of the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel, this outward expression, oh, because we have this circumcision, that is going to save us. Oh, because we have the law, that is going to save us. Now here in Texas, we have a lot of people who are very similar to the religious Jew, but instead of associating themselves with Judaism, they might associate themselves with Catholicism or Christianity. And two of the main things that these religious people today depend upon are very similar to what the religious Jews depend upon. 
First, they might think, well, I have the Bible, or I hear the Bible, I go to church. You know, well, surely, you know, having the Bible is something that will make me right with God. Surely, going to church and listening to it taught will, will make me escape God's judgment. And the second thing that they often depend on is that outward expression. Now, for the Jews, it was circumcision. For many people today, for some who are Catholics, it might be, you know, the sprinkling, or even for some in, you know, Protestant movement, you know, I was sprinkled as a baby, or, or even I was dunked in and baptized as an adult. That, my outward expression, that is the thing that I'm relying on to save me. But I'm not relying on a relationship with Jesus. I'm not relying upon, you know, actually accepting Him. I'm relying upon this religious affiliation or this religious expression that I have in my life. You know, if you were to ask someone who's depending on religion to save them, if you were to die tonight, you were to stand before the Lord, why should He let you into heaven? You would hear a lot of responses that are not biblical. They would say things, well, because I went to church every week, or, or I went to Mass, or I prayed, or I, I read my Bible, or I tithe, or I gave to the poor. Well, why should God let me in? Well, because I was sprinkled, or because I was baptized, or because I, I had some kind of outward expression. I was a member of a church, or I went through confirmation. You know, they're, they're holding on to these certain things. They think, that is what is ultimately going to save me. That is what is going to get me into heaven now, many of these things are, are good things, but they don't save you. Going to church doesn't save you. Reading your Bible doesn't save you. Doing good works doesn't save you. Being baptized doesn't save you. The only thing that saves you from God's judgment is placing your faith in Jesus and having a relationship with him. You know, these things that people will list who are religious, like going to church and praying and tithing and giving and doing good, those are all good things but I want you to understand something. They are things we do because we have a relationship with the Lord, not things that grant a relationship with the Lord. We get the relationship by placing our faith in Jesus. We don't get a relationship because we go to church, because we're baptized, because we read our Bible, because we do good works, and the list goes on and on. People think that is what enables me to have a relationship with God. No, it doesn't. We do those things because we have a relationship with God, not to gain the relationship, not to escape the judgment. So those who rely on their religious affiliation and expression to save them from God's judgment, they really need to understand these six principles of judgment that Paul's going to share. Now you might be thinking, well, I've already accepted Christ, so what does this have to do with me? Well, it has a lot to do with you and me because we're the ones who hopefully are going to be sharing the gospel with people like that. Texas is full of people in this category, and so we need to know these principles so that we, as we share the gospel, can understand some of the arguments that Paul gives that we can use to help people understand, hey, it's not through these things that you think it is. It's not through these religious affiliations and these expressions and all this stuff. You are still under God's judgment. You still need a Savior. And so this is important for us to understand so that we can be more equipped to reach this group of people with the gospel. And so let's start by looking at the first principle of judgment that Paul shares in Romans chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where we left off last week. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Paul starts off with something very important for the religious Jew to understand and very important for any religious person who's relying upon their religion to understand. That's the fact that God shows no partiality. Now the Greek word here translated partiality means judgment that is based on preferential treatment and favoritism. It's interesting, this was a legal term that was used in the Greek language mainly to refer to judges that were in a place of placing judgment upon uh, people before them. The idea of this word is that one judges on the basis of external or preconceived notions and shows partiality or favoritism. It meant to make unjust decisions between people treating one person better than another. The judges in Paul's day struggled with what many judges in our day and age struggle with as well partiality, favoritism to certain groups of people, so they judge them in a different way than other groups of people. We, we have this all over our society, and people get very upset that we look and we see that the wealthy and the powerful seem to often be judged with a different standard, much more lenient standard than the poor and unpowerful. 
We see this reality that there are many judges who judge with partiality. They look and they see it and they have a different standard for different groups of people. You know, when you watch courtroom dramas, you often see lawyers are hoping for a certain judge because they say, oh, if we get this judge, it's good for us because he will be very partial to us. He will show favoritism to us, but we don't want that judge. That judge is not going to be good for us because he will not be partial towards us. And they're looking for that. So sadly, the world judges are often very partial, favorite they have. But Paul wants us to understand something about God as our just judge. God does not show partiality. He doesn't have favorites. When he judges people, that is not the way that he approaches it. This is not something new. This is something the Old Testament revealed as well. Deuteronomy 10, 17 and 18 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. God doesn't show partiality in his judgment. And uh, Deuteronomy brings up, he doesn't take a bribe either. Because there's judges today that say, hey, if you can kick down some money here, I can give you a favorable outcome. No, God doesn't work that way. And notice the list of people that he specifically says God is fair to. The fatherless, the widow, the stranger, all the people in that culture who would have been looked upon in a negative way. They would have shown favoritism to others. This was like the low class of society. God takes care of everyone and judges everyone equally. He judges the rich the same as he does the poor. The Jew, the same as the Gentile. The religious, the same as the unreligious. Paul goes on to say in verse 12, For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. In this verse, Paul makes clear that God doesn't show partiality to those who possess the law. Now, for the Jews of Paul's day, they believed that God did show them partiality. Actually, many ancient rabbis taught that God will judge the Gentiles with one measure and the Jews with another. So it's a very common thought that we as Jews, because of the fact that we feel superior, God has given us the law, we have circumcision, we're descendants of Abraham. When we stand before God in judgment, he's going to be partial to us. We're his favorites. He's going to show us favoritism. And so they believe that, that the Gentiles would be judged by one standard much harsher, and they would be judged by another standard much more lenient. But Paul wants them to understand that's not true. Those who don't have the law will be judged without the law, and those who do have the law will be judged by the law. Having the law, Paul wants them to understand, isn't going to help you escape the judgment of God, because God does not show partiality. You're not going to get preferential treatment because God has given you the law. Now this truth about God not showing partiality was a shock to the religious Jews of the day, but you know what? It's also a shock to religious people in our culture because those who hold to religious affiliation, hold to religious expression, they believe I'm God's favorites. They believe God will show me partiality. I mean, look, I go to church. I mean, I was baptized. I, I did this, I did that. They think all those things bring them into the good books of God. And so now God's going to deal with them and judge them in a different way, that he's going to be partial to them versus other people who aren't in this religious category that they place themselves in. But it's not true. Something important for us to understand that the Bible reveals is God is a just judge. Well, guess what? A just judge cannot be uh, showing partiality. You have to be impartial to be truly just. And that's one of the unchangeable attributes of God, that he is just, so it's impossible for him to show partiality. He is very impartial. He does not take favorites. He deals with everyone in the same way. William Newell said this about God's impartiality when judging. Among men, there is almost nothing else but what James and Jude denounce as showing respect of persons for the sake of advantage. The rich, the educated, the traveled, the cultured, the prominent, the influential, the pleasing, the strong are all sought after. The poor, the ignorant, the weak, and despised are neglected. But not so with God. He sees men through his own eyes of holiness and truth always. He sees not as man sees. It is a terrifying thought to the earth's great, but an infinitely comforting thought to every humble, God-fearing soul 
that there is an impartial one with no respect of persons with whom they will be judged. The first principle that Paul shares here about God's judgment towards the religious reliance is this. God's judgment is without partiality. God doesn't judge based on preferential treatment. He doesn't judge based on favoritism. He's not going to judge the sins of the religious person more lenient than the sins of the immoral heathen. So when we're trying to reach to the religious reliant, we're trying to share the gospel with them, we need them to understand that God's judgment is without partiality. Help them to understand, you know, God's not going to judge you more leniently. You're not going to escape it because, oh, you have this religious affiliation or, oh, you do that or this. That's not going to get you out of the judgment of God. <coughs> the second principle of judgment that Paul shares is in verses 13 through 15. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and because and between themselves their thoughts accuse or else excuse them. The religious Jews who thought that God was partial to them because of the law, they would have really struggled with this concept that Paul is bringing to them, that God shows no partiality. Wait a second, Paul. That goes against everything that we've believed. Surely he's partial to us. We're his chosen people. We have the law. We have circumcision. We are descendants of Abraham. They would have struggled with this reality. And so Paul shares an important truth about the law to help religious Jews see why having the law doesn't actually save them from God's judgment. Paul says, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. The religious Jews thought that just having the law, hearing the law, hey, we go to synagogue every week. We hear the law taught every week. They thought that was good enough. We have it. God gave it to us. We hear it. And because we have it and we hear it, we're good with God and we will escape the judgment of God. Well, Paul wants them to understand that's not the case. But you know what? Many religious people today have a similar mindset. Just because we have the Bible and maybe we go to church every week or we go to church on Easter and Christmas and we hear the word of God. Well, that's all we need to do. You know, we, we hear it. I mean, isn't that enough? We go, we listen to it. That's enough to make me right with God. That's enough to keep me from God's judgment. That, that's what those who hold on to religion today have this mindset that that's good enough to make me right with the Lord. Well, Paul wants them and us to understand something very important about the law. If you're trying to be justified through the law, there's only one way to do that. Keep it perfectly. You want to try to be justified. If that is your way to be justified before God, my justification is going to be through the law, which is what the Jews were thinking. We have it. That's why we're going to be justified and fine. Paul says, okay, if you want to use the law to do that, you have to keep the standard of the law. And the standard of the law is perfection. If you want to use the law to get right with God, then you have to hold to the standard that it is, which is perfection. You have to do it all perfectly. Now he brings this up because he knows there's a problem. A problem that goes across every group that we looked at. The problem of the immoral heathen, the problem of the moralist, the problem of the religious. We all have the same one. None of us can keep the perfect standard of the law. We've all fallen short. We've all missed the standard. None of us can do what God's standard requires of us. We cannot perfectly keep the law. So Paul wants these religious Jews to know it's not the hearers of the law that will be just. It's the doers. If you want to hold to the law and think this is what's going to save you, recognize one important truth. You better do it perfectly. Well, this would bring up the reality that Paul wants them to see. God's righteous judgment is not withheld because someone hears the law. It will only be withheld if someone does it perfectly and none of you are doing it perfectly, so you will not escape God's judgment just because you hear it, just because you have it. It's only if you do it perfectly and you're all 
guilty. This is what Paul wants them to understand because once again, they had a very different standard of what they thought versus what God says. All I need is to hear it. All I need is to have it. And the law will make me right with God. God says, no, my standard is you must hear it and have it and keep it perfectly. You forgot that last part of keeping it perfectly and you haven't done it. That's the standard and none of you meet it. Now the religious Jew might respond by saying, okay, if doing the law justifies you and if not doing the law condemns you, well, where does that leave the Gentile who doesn't have the law? Paul, come on, if the, the, having to do it is justification and not doing it is condemnation, then what about those Gentiles who don't have the law at all? How is God going to judge them? How can Gentiles be condemned if they don't have the law? Well, Paul's going to answer that in verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law or a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves and their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them. Paul brings another important thing to understand about the law, which it seems that the religious Jews of his day missed. The law is God's perfect standard, a perfect standard of what God determines to be right and what God determines to be wrong. And God revealed his perfect standard to the nation of Israel by Moses, who wrote it down on tablets of stone, and then it was transferred you know, in other fashion of, of being written for them to read. But the religious Jews thought, yeah, that's why we feel so proud. That's why we feel we're good with God. I mean, we were given this wonderful law. It was written. It was given to us, the chosen people, and we rely on this to escape, escape God's judgment. But, you know, those wicked Gentiles, they didn't get the law. So, you know, where are they at? Well, Paul reveals something else about God's law, about this standard that God had revealed. He revealed it to them through the written law on tablets of stone. But Paul says, you know what? That's not the only way that God has revealed his standard of right and wrong. He has also written it in another place, on the hearts of people. He didn't just write it down on tablets of stone. Paul is saying that he also has written his law on people's heart. The standard of right and wrong God has place in individual lives. We call it our conscience. Within each person, God has given a conscience that recognizes right and wrong. So the question, how can a Gentile be judged if they never had the law? How can they be judged by breaking a law that they didn't know? Well, Paul says, well, actually, they do have a law. Not the same in you, as you do in the sense of it being written that you can read, but the one that was internal, written on their heart, their conscience Reveal to them what is right and wrong. And that's why Paul says in verse 15, their conscience also bearing witness in between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So what Paul is saying is for those who don't have the external written law, they'll be judged by the internal written law on their heart. You see, not only are we all guilty of breaking the external written law, we're also guilty of breaking the internal law. Every one of us has a conscience, and every one of us has had our conscience tell us, this is wrong, don't do this, don't go there, don't do whatever it is, and we have ignored that, we have rejected that, we have gone against that, and so we're not only guilty of breaking the written law externally that God has established, we're also guilty of breaking the internal law of our conscience, and so Paul's saying, hey, Jews who have been given their external law, God will judge you by it. And Gentiles who only have the internal law on their heart of their conscience, God will judge them for breaking that. And both will be held guilty because no one is perfect except for Jesus who did not break the external or the internal law. William Newell said this about the law written in our hearts. Thus Paul explains why the Gentile can be condemned without the law. How is it that God is fair in condemning those who have never uh, had a Bible? Paul clearly demonstrates that their conscience, the work of the law written in their hearts, is enough to condemn. Many pagan authors of Paul's day refer to the unwritten law within man, something which points us to the right way. Paul, who had never heard God's word, or people who had never heard God's word directly still have a moral compass that they are accountable to. God is describing how he is how he has constituted all men 
There is a work within them making them morally conscious. So the second principle of judgment that Paul shares with us is God's judgment will be poured out upon anyone who hasn't completely done the law. A shock to the religious Jews. What are you talking about? I thought all we needed to do was hear it. I thought all we needed to do was have it. No, you will be judged if you don't keep it. If you don't do it completely the way God has laid it out. God's righteous judgment is not withheld because someone has heard the law. It's only withheld if someone completely does it. So we're all guilty. We've all broken the external law. We've all broken the internal law of our hearts. And as we talk to people who hold to this category of being reliant on their religious affiliation or their religious expression, we have to bring them back to this reality of, really? Oh, I go to church every week, and that's why I'm going to heaven. Well, do you keep everything that the Bible teaches? Well, no. Okay, well, then you're going to be judged. If that's what you're holding to, if that's your standard, if you want to be held to what Scripture teaches, then, okay, you haven't met the standard and God's judgment is upon you. The third principle of judgment that Paul shares with us is in verse 16. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Here Paul is referencing the great day of judgment. We looked at it last week in detail in Revelation chapter 20, a very sobering chapter of what's going to transpire that that day, Everyone's going to stand before Jesus Christ and be judged for their sins. And we talked about you know, the books that are written. Every single thing that you have done sinful is recorded and you'll be judged for it. But Paul here brings up a whole new category. One that's so important for us to understand. He tells us that, you know what? God's also going to judge the secrets of men. You know, in our legal system today, we don't judge people for their secrets. We actually have laws in place that you can't be forced to share your secrets if they will condemn you. In a courtroom, if you're standing before a lawyer and he's asking you things, guess what you can do? You can take the fifth. You cannot respond. You're not required to share secrets about your own sin that would bring a sentence of condemnation on yourself. You can't incriminate yourself in our legal system. So you can hold on to secrets. And you can think, I'll get away with secrets. Even in our culture, you can do things as long as no one else finds out you're okay. And when you stand before a judge and you stand before lawyers, you're not even required to actually tell. You can just say, I take the fifth. I'll incriminate myself. I don't have to. But you know, there's religious people who think, hey, you know what? Ah, secrets, if I hold on to them. And I think this is so important because so often religious people, what is it they want to do? They want to be seen as better than they really are. They want to be seen as so righteous and religious. This is what we saw with the Pharisees and Jesus. The biggest thing that Jesus said to the Pharisees in a rebuke was that they were hypocrites. That they wanted everyone to see them as these righteous people when the reality was they were pretty wretched and sinful and had no relationship with God. They wanted to be seen as something that they weren't. They had these secret sins. They had these secret issues that they didn't want people to see. And they thought, hey, everyone thinks we're so great. But what Paul wants to say is, hey, you can deceive people, sure. You can have secrets and people can think you're super righteous and see, th think all these things about you, but there's one person that you won't deceive. There's one person that you're not going to get away with trying to say, hey, my secret sin is never going to be found out and never going to be judged. Paul wants them to understand God judges not just what is outwardly seen. He also judges what you try to keep secret. God knows everything. Nothing we can do is hid from him. It's been said that secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. Because nothing's hidden from God. He's not going to be like, oh, wow, I didn't know that was going on. He sees everything that we're doing. And this is another very important principle for those holding to and relying on religion to save them to know. Point number three, God's judgment reaches our secrets. When we share the gospel with religious reliance, we need to help them understand that. Oh, but I'm so good and I'm so great and blah, blah, blah. You know what? Do you have any secret sins? Anything that you're trying to hide? Anything you don't want anyone to know about yourself? Any internet activity? Any thoughts? Any things that you don't want people to see? Well, guess what? God sees it and he's going to judge you for it. You're not going to escape him. The fourth principle of judgment that Paul shares with us is in verse 17 through 24. 
Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, you who rob, te- do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. Paul starts here with a list of things that religious Jews would boast in because they have the law. All the reasons that they would boast, hey, we got the law and here's our list of reasons why we boast, why we think because of this, we're good with God. Because of this, we'll escape God's judgment. And so he throws out this list to them. And remember, Paul would know this list very well. He used to be in this category. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was high up in there. He thought this religious thing was a thing that ultimately made him right with God. He, he was one of these guys, and he knew what they boasted about because he used to boast about it as well. They rest in the law because they possess it. <coughs> they make their boasts in God, know his will, approve of the things that are excellent because they have been instructed out of the law. They are confident that they're a guide to the blind because they possess the law. That they are a light to those who are in darkness because they possess the law. They are instructors of the foolish, a teacher of babes because they possess the law. So Paul lays out all this stuff. You boast in all these things that you have the law and you know the law and you teach people the law. That's all good and great. Now let me ask you some heart-searching questions. And I want you to ponder as you think that because you know it and you teach it, you're okay. Let me ask you this. You, therefore, who teach another, do you teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. With all these questions, Paul is wanting this group of religious Jews to ask themselves a heart-searching question that they probably haven't really thought through. And the question he wants them to ask themselves is, do you keep the law? You guys are great at telling everybody else how to live. You're great at telling them what the law teaches. But I have a question for you. When you tell people don't steal, do you? When you tell people don't commit adultery, do you? When you tell people don't do this and don't do that, are you guilty of doing the same thing? Do you guys break the law that you teach to others? Can you see how you break the law? Because you surely can see how everyone else does, but do you see it in yourselves? Do you recognize your own coming up short when it comes to God's perfect standard? You see, the religious Jews thought that since we know the law, And since we teach the law to others, that makes us right with God, that will keep us from God's judgment. Well, once again, Paul brings them back to the reality that is not the standard by which God judges. Actually, the fact that you know it, and you know it so well that you can teach it, that doesn't make you better in the eyes of God. That makes you more accountable. The fact that you're not doing what you claim to know and what you're telling others to do, the fact that you're not practicing what you preach, it doesn't make you better in the guise of God. It makes you more deserving of judgment because you're not doing the thing that you clearly know. I mean, you could try to use the excuse of ignorance, but you can't because you know it so well. You're teaching it to people and yet you're not living it yourself. And so you think knowledge and teaching means I won't, receive judgment and Paul saying actually the opposite is true the fact that you know it so well to teach it makes you more deserving of judgment why would you conclude you're not going to escape judgment if you're doing the things that you tell other people they shouldn't do Howard Hendricks said this millions of churchgoers live in a sentimental haze of vague piety with soft organ music trembling in the lovely lights from stained glass windows. Their religion is a pleasant thing of emotional quiver, divorced from the intellect, divorced from the will, and demanding little except lip service to a few harmless platitudes. 
I suspect that Satan has called off his attempt to convert these people to agnosticism. After all, if a person travels far enough away from Christianity, he or she is always in danger of seeing it in perspective and deciding that it's true. It is much safer from Satan's point of view to vaccinate a person with a mild case of Christianity so as to protect him from the real disease. Satan loves to get people to just be churchgoers. Oh, that's just good enough. If I, I show up and I, I do these good things and you know that's what's going to save me. It's not the gospel. It's not accepting Christ. It's not that. No, as long as I just come to church. That's it. That's all I need. You know, I'll just do a few good works. I'll give a little money. I'll help the poor. And I'm right with God. You know, when we visit Jenny's extended family in Alabama, our heart's broken because there are several people in her extended family from birth. They've been going to church. It's the culture there in Alabama. They go every single week. But you know what? They have not ever had a relationship with Jesus Christ. They have not accepted the gospel. But if you were to dare tell them that they are not right with God, they'd be like, well, how dare you say that? I go to church every week. I do good things. I tithe. I help in the community. They think this is what's going to save me. This is what's going to keep me from God's judgment. They don't understand that they need Jesus as their savior. They don't understand the reality of the gospel. Church attendance is all that it's going to take. The fourth principle of judgment that Paul shares with us is this. Knowing and teaching the law and not doing it makes you even more deserving of God's judgment. I think this is such an important principle as we talk with those relying on religion and we share with them and they think, well, well, you know, I listen to the Bible. I go to church. I hear teachings. Well, if that, what that does for you, it just makes you more accountable. Now you know the truth that you're not living. Now you hear the truth that you're not accepting. That, that doesn't make you less accountable before God. That makes you more accountable. That makes you more deserving of judgment, not less deserving of judgment. And help them to see the reality that those things that they're depending on will never save them. These first four principles of judgment have focused on the law. One of the main things that these religious Jews were holding to to escape the judgment of God. But there's another thing that they held to, and that is circumcision. And so these final two principles of judgment are going to focus on this dependence, this reliance on circumcision to save them. Verse 25 says this, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, even when your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? One of the main things besides the law that religious Jews held to, well, this will save us, this will keep us from the judgment of God, is, hey, we're circumcised. Back in the time of Abraham, God gave the sign of circumcision. I want all males at eight, year, eight days old to be circumcised in, in the nation of Israel. You know, this is going to be a sign of the covenant that I made with you. And so it was this outward sign, this expression of the covenant that God had with the nation of Israel. And they thought, well, hey, we're circumcised. We're good with God. This shows that, you know, we're good. Everything's fine. You know, because we're circumcised, there's no way we're going to be judged by God. You know, there's... Everything's okay. Actually, in Paul's day, some rabbis taught that Abraham sat at the entrance of hell and made certain that none of his circumcised descendants went there. So, okay, we're good. Circumcision's all we need. Well, once again, Paul is going to give them a little education on this to help them see that they missed it. Just being circumcised isn't enough. Notice what he says here. Circumcision is only profitable to you if you keep the entire law. If you keep the entire law, great, then your circumcision has meaning. But if you don't keep the law, then your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It's worthless to you. If you're not doing what the law says, then who cares if you have an outward expression of your covenant with God? You're not doing anything that God says, so who cares if you have this outward expression of it? Now, to help make his point, Paul shares a, a hypothetical situation and poses Two questions. He knows this is not possible, but he says, here, let's just pose this so you can understand how worthless circumcision is if you don't keep the law. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man 
keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? So in this hypothetical, Paul's saying, hey, what if an uncircumcised guy somehow was able to keep the entire law? Wouldn't the fact that he kept the whole law be counted as circumcision, wouldn't that be the ultimate sign of his covenant with God that, hey, God, I'm doing what you've required. Wouldn't that be the important thing? And you know what? If he was uncircumcised and did that, wouldn't he be able to judge you even though you're circumcised, but you don't do it? So wouldn't he be able to judge you for the fact that you don't actually hold to the standard that he has acquired? Now it's a hypothetical because Paul knows that no one can meet the standard of the law. Let me give you another example that might help you understand Paul's point. Circumcision is like a label on a can. The label's only useful if it's an accurate description of what's inside. So if you put peas on the label because you want to make it look healthy, but the can is full of sugar, then it's a label that is a lie. It's deceptive. Now, you might put that in your cupboard so you know your wife thinks that you're eating peas, or, but the reality is you're just pounding down sugar. But the reality is the label doesn't represent what's actually in the can. What Paul is saying is circumcision is just an outward label. It's a sign of something that should actually be being transpired in you. So if you're actually doing the law, then the label represents you. But when you're not, the label's a lie. It does you no good. It's like uncircumcised. It's like, who cares? What's the point? It's not doing you any good. Now, the same is true with religious people who think, you know, baptism or being sprinkled as a baby is going to save them. That, you know, this outward sign is going to do it. Well, biblically, baptism is an outward sign of the inward change that has happened because you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. But sadly, there are people who are baptized who've never accepted Christ. They just do it as a show. They just do it as, well, maybe this will save me. They think that the the ceremony itself is all that's needed, and they miss. No, no, no. This is just an outward demonstration of what has transpired before that, my commitment to Jesus, my acceptance of Jesus, my asking Jesus to forgive me of my sins. Actually, baptism is a representation of Jesus who died and rose again, and now that we are part of him, we're died to our old self and rise again. All of this is a great picture if we've accepted him. But if you haven't accepted him, it's just a false label. It doesn't mean anything. Well, who cares if you've been dunked? It doesn't represent what it's supposed to. It's an outward demonstration of something that's never happened inwardly. And so it's a label that says peas, but all you are is sugar. It's saying something that's not true. And so it's useless to save you. It's useless for you because it doesn't represent what it's meant to. Kind of like a wedding ring. My wedding ring is a sign that I'm married to Jenny. But it's just a sign. If I take it off, it doesn't mean, oh, I'm no, no longer married. You know, our marriage is done. My wedding ring's off. If I were to drop it and Manny were to pick it up and put it on, it doesn't mean now he's married to my wife and I'm not anymore. It's just a sign. But you know what? If I wasn't married and I wear, wore a wedding ring, it would just be an empty symbol. It doesn't represent anything. I don't have a wife. I'm just pretending that I do. See, that's all it is. That's what baptism is. That's what circumcision is. That's what these outward signs are. If there's not actually something inwardly that has happened and transpired, it's just an empty label. It's just a false sign. And that's what Paul wants these guys to see. Who cares if you're circumcised? It won't save you unless you actually keep the law. You guys have missed it. You don't get the reality here. The fifth principle of judgment that Paul shares with us is this. Religious expression will not save you from God's judgment. Another very important thing, when we come to people who are depending upon their religious affiliation, or more importantly, their religious expression, baptism's a big one. We have to help them see, well, why did you have it in the first place? Oh, you know, I just did this because it makes me right with God. No, it doesn't. We have to help them to see it's just an expression that's actually false because it represents nothing because they actually haven't made a commitment to Jesus Christ and accepted him. The sixth and final principle of judgment that Paul shares with us is in verses 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, 
but from God. Here Paul wants these religious Jews to understand that a Jew who is truly right with God is not just outwardly expressing these things, but inwardly he shows this as well. Paul wants these religious Jews to understand something very important. God doesn't just judge the outward. God doesn't just judge the outward actions. He also judges the heart. And this is something that they miss. It's something they definitely miss in the time of Jesus. Jesus actually had to teach to help them understand, you've been told certain things about the law, but you've missed something very important because you think, hey, you know, I don't do this or I don't do that, and therefore I'm okay. Well, actually, you're not. But before we get to that, 1 Samuel 16, 7 tells us something about how God judges. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but notice where the Lord looks, at the heart. You know, we're so sucked in in our culture to seeing the outward appearance, and we can buy into the lie that someone's doing so great if they put on a good enough show, because all we see is the show that they share with us, but God sees past that. He sees the heart. He sees the intent. He sees what's going on deep inside of us. He's not deceived by the outward display. But there were people in Jesus' day, people in Paul's day, people in our day, who think, you know what? I've kept the law. I've done what God says. I've never murdered someone. I've never committed adultery. I've never done this and that. I haven't done this outwardly. But Jesus, when he teaches, he says, you know what? Once again, you miss the standard of which God judges by. Jesus brings a whole new standard, which would make everyone understand that they are guilty. Matthew chapter 5, notice the standard that Jesus brings. You have heard that it was said of old. So he's speaking of what you've been taught. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus brings up something very important for us to understand. God's judgment is not just based on the outward action. You might think, I've never killed someone. Jesus would say, have you been angry with them? Yes, okay, then I see you as guilty of murder. I've never committed adultery on my wife. Jesus says, have you ever lusted after a woman? Yes, well, then you're guilty of adultery according to God. Because he doesn't just see the outward actions, he also sees the heart. And people listening to this sermon would recognize, whew, we're guilty. Nobody can be innocent after hearing this because we all recognize, yeah, I might not have acted on some of these feelings and some of these thoughts, but I surely have them. I surely would love to kill that person sometimes. I surely lust after that person sometimes. And I'm guilty now, according to God. And this is what Paul wants these religious people to understand. God's not just judging your outward action. You might think, I'm doing good. A lot of the Pharisees of Jesus' day actually convinced themselves they were keeping the law. Paul even thought that of himself. But the reality is, he wasn't. Because of this truth here, God doesn't just judge the outward. He also judges the hearts. Which brings us to the sixth principle of judgment. God doesn't just judge our outward actions. He also judges our heart. If you're sharing with a religious person who thinks they've kept the law, oh, I do everything that God says. Really? Bring this up to them. Help them to see. Well, explain to me how you've done it. Well, I've never murdered someone. Oh, really? Have you ever hated someone? Well, well, you're guilty. Oh, I've never, you know, committed adultery. Have you ever lusted for someone? Yes. Okay, you're guilty. This is one of those things that brings them back to the reality of you stand guilty before God. Why is Paul doing all of this? Why is he spending the time to share these principles? He wants those relying on religion to understand, hey, this won't save you. You are guilty before God. And the reason I want you to understand that is because I want you to see you need Jesus as a Savior. It is hard to reach people who don't think they need a Savior. It's hard to reach people who think, I'm already good with God. How do you convince someone who thinks they're good with God that they're not? Well, Paul is bringing these principles to say you have to help them understand the only way they could think they're good with God is if they missed the standard by which God judges. Because if they understood that standard, there is no way they could conclude that they're innocent. And so we need to help them come to this. We need to help them realize, first and foremost, you need to see you need a Savior. And then 
we'll share with you what the Savior has done and why you can have a relationship with God. But unless they recognize it, they will never come to the next step of wanting to make a decision for Jesus Christ. Ray Pritchard shares how people should respond to what Paul has shared in this chapter. Your alternatives are very simple. Either you face Jesus Christ now or face him later. Today, he is your savior. Tomorrow, he will be your judge. Today, you can be forgiven. Tomorrow, you will only be condemned. Today, your record can be wiped clean. Tomorrow, your record will be used against you. Run to the cross. Run, do not walk. Run, make haste to the bleeding cross of Jesus Christ. Don't just stand there looking religious. Religion can only damn you. If you are Mr. I'm okay, then drop everything and run to Jesus. Drop your morality, drop your pretense, drop your hypocrisy, drop your excuses, drop it all and run to the Son of God. The good news is this, Jesus is ready to meet you. When Mr. I'm okay finally comes to the cross, there he encounters the power that will transform him into Mr. I'm forgiven. This is the ultimate desire of what Paul's sharing here. I want people to recognize you're not okay. Religion won't save you. The only one who can is Jesus and you must come to him so that you can move from the category that's a lie that you're okay to the truth that you are forgiven because you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ. You know, the chapter that we have looked at should be a great reminder of each one of us is deserving of God's judgment. Before we came to Jesus Christ, we fit into one of these three categories. We were either the immoral heathen, we were the moralists who thought we, our good works were save us, or we were the religious. We fit in one of those, but it doesn't matter which category we were in. Paul has built the case, all of us deserve the judgment of God. And that should bring us to a place of gratefulness. We should recognize that what Jesus has done to enable us to escape Judgment is so amazing because we deserve it. Because each of us deserve God's judgment. We deserve hell for what we've done. But Jesus has made it possible through his death on the cross to enable us to escape that. So we're going to close this morning as we do at the first of each month. Just taking some time to remember what Jesus has done. We see the list of all the things that we are guilty of, but remember that Jesus took that upon himself. He died on the cross for our sins. He's made it possible for us to be forgiven. And so we're going to remember what he's done by taking communion together. And can I have the worship team come on up? The worship team is going to lead us in a song of communion. And as the song's being played, I just encourage you uh, just to hold on to the communion elements. Uh, we're going to take it all together. But this is an open communion, uh, meaning if you have personally chosen to accept Jesus Christ, you've asked for his forgiveness, then we encourage you to partake with us. But if that's not something that you've ever done, you've never made a decision to accept Christ, you've never asked for his forgiveness, then I would just ask that you let the elements pass by. That's not something uh, for you to partake of. But uh, let's hold on to those elements and then we will partake of them together. So let's worship the Lord.